All right, Revelation chapter 15. I'll read the whole chapter. We're going to cover the whole chapter tonight. So Revelation 15, starting in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, two weeks ago, because uh, we do this every, you know, first and third Sundays, two weeks ago we finished the third cycle of uh, visions that John receives in the book of Revelation. He is called up, he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he's called up to heaven, and he's given visions of things that, are, you know, things that have been, things that are, and things that are yet to come. And while he's up there, he, he, we've been saying that this book, Revelation, these visions are structured into cycles, seven cycles. And they, they cover the period of Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book. And the third cycle was uh, chapters 12 through 14 in which we see the entire scope, the entire panoply of world history, of redemptive history, sort of encapsulated in this what we've been calling these symbolic uh, histories. The entire church age through history in seven symbolic persons or personages. Right? If you remember in chapter 12, we saw the woman, which is representative of the people of God. We saw the dragon, who is representative of Satan. We saw the child that was born to the woman, representative of Jesus. We saw the beast from the sea, which is the Antichrist, uh, wicked uh, world governments. We saw the beast from the earth, the false prophet or wicked, uh, evil, false religion that supports and promotes uh, the, the first beast. We see the lamb, which is again Jesus. And then we see the 144,000, which is the people of God again. So that entire period we're looking at there, 12 through 14, covers the entire scope of world history. But at the end of that section, we looked at uh, last time verses 14 through 20, basically the rest of that chapter there, that chapter closes 
um, after the proclamations of these three angels, that chapter closes with what we saw as two harvests. Uh, two harvests that come at the end of the age. So we see one like a son of man coming down uh, on a cloud. Uh, this is, of course, Jesus and that, that idea of coming like the son of man on a cloud uh, calls us to Daniel chapter 7, which Lord willing we'll look at next Sunday. Uh, but Daniel chapter 7, he gets this vision of the beasts, these beasts rising out of the sea that are representative of successive world kingdoms. Then he sees one like a son of man coming down that will conquer all of these kingdoms. So we see this one like the son of man coming. He's got a sharp sickle and he goes to work. He starts to harvest and he harvests the first fruits. He harvests the, the, the grain of the earth. And we said that that's a harvest of believers. That's the first harvest. The other one is a harvest of the, grape, uh, the grapevine, the harvest of the vineyard, which we see another angel coming down and he also has a sharp sickle and he's told to thrust his sickle in and to harvest the grapes and then those grapes are taken and they're thrown into this giant wine press which then God in his wrath tramples on these grapes and we see this graphic image of the juice of these grapes flowing out of the, uh, the wine press going uh, 1600 stadia or you know, a, a long distance. Um, basically saying, you know, this, the blood of this wrath covers the whole world. It is, it is encompassing the whole world. So we saw those two harvests there in the end of the last chapter. The harvest of the grain, which is Jesus calling his own home to him, and then the harvest of the grapes, which is uh, the angels executing judgment on the rest of the world. Now, as we head into this passage tonight here, Revelation chapter 15, like I said, we're coming into a new cycle. So this is cycle number four. And this cycle, like I said, will cover chapters 15 and 16. Now, another thing to notice and to keep in mind is all of these cycles, they all end with the return of Christ in some way, shape, or form. Okay, sometimes it's implied sometimes it's very explicit like it was in the end of chapter 14 it was very explicit one like the son of man is coming down and he gathers his own to him and the the rest are trampled under other times you just see hints of it but each cycle ends with the end of history it ends with the second coming and this fourth one will be no different because in chapter 16 if you want to just peek ahead after the um, the, the bowls are poured out, you get the Battle of Armageddon, which is in the sixth bowl, I believe. Um, the, the famous you know, Armageddon, right? So that's the final battle. We'll talk more about that next time when we get there. But each of these cycles ends with the second coming. And here, this cycle will cover what we are seeing here, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Okay, so now we've seen this before, sort of, right? We saw the seven seals. If you remember the seven seals, each time a seal was broken, we saw sort of judgment coming upon the earth. Uh, the same thing with the trumpets. Each time a trumpet was blown, uh, judgment was poured on the earth. But the, what we're going to see here differently with the bulls, when we get to the bulls again, uh, is that the scope of the bull judgments is total. Okay, if you remember the seals, the seals were one fourth, right? One fourth of this was dried up, one fourth of that was destroyed. 
The trumpets were one-third. One-third of the green grass was destroyed. One-third of the seas were turned to blood. Here with the bulls, when they're poured out, everything is destroyed. It is total destruction. And as we saw here, uh, looking again at verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1, we see that with these bulls, the wrath of God is complete. So this will finish the, the wrath of God, if you will. Now, again, as with the seals and the trumpets, we're going to also, I'm going to argue with this with the bulls too, we should sort of resist the urge to try to correlate this or match this with things that are happening in the world or things, you know, whether past, present, or yet to come. Because that's not, in, that's not the idea, that's not the intention of these visions is to sort of correlate one-to-one with some kind of reality that's going on in the world today. These are visions that are meant to depict sort of behind-the-scenes things or things that are more grand in scope. You know, the, you know, again, Revelation is, is an apocalypse. It is an apocalyptic type of uh, literature which talks about things, you know, it talks about truth, but it uses highly symbolic language. So we shouldn't expect to see a literal angel coming and pouring a literal bowl of something called wrath on, onto the world below us. Uh, but what we are going to see, of course, is that this is what happens at the end of the age. God will pour out His wrath on the world. Now, as with all the other cycles, uh, this vision begins in heaven, as we see here. Another sign in heaven where God is. God is in heaven. That's where He resides. And it ends with the return of Christ. Again, if you flip over to uh, the end of chapter 16, you're going to see that there is, uh, after the, the battle of Armageddon, the seventh bowl comes, and uh, you know, Babylon falls, and great hail comes down upon everybody. And you know, the, the end, that is, the, the end has come. So this vision begins in heaven and ends with the return of Christ. Now, this vision in chapter 15 begins when John sees another sign in heaven. And that's how we're clued that this is another cycle of visions, right? These, every time John gets a new vision, the, the language in the Bible here is pretty clear because they'll say, then I saw or then I beheld, or then I looked and saw. That indicates that a new vision. He's seeing a new uh, vision here. and So he sees in heaven another sign, a great and marvelous sign. And he sees seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So this sign is in heaven, just like the sign that began the third cycle back in Revelation 12, verse 1. Another sign in heaven where he sees the, the woman clothed with the sun. Here this also begins in heaven. And this sign is also great and amazing, or great and marvelous, like the sign he saw back in Revelation 12, 1. Now, it's hard, it's hard to kind of appreciate what those words mean, right? Great and marvelous. Because we use those words all the time, right? You know, how many times you hear people say, oh, that was awesome, right? And you're like, what was it? Well, I had the world's best tacos. Those tacos were awesome. Now, I like tacos. I like tacos quite a bit. Tacos are not awesome. 
Okay, tacos can be very good. But to say tacos are awesome is to sort of denude the word awesome from all meaning. Because if tacos are awesome, then what's better than awesome? I, I don't know, right? So it's hard to imagine what these, you know, what these words mean because we, we don't appreciate the force of them. Because we, we use them so often. And, 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 you know, words like that just kind of fall short. So we need to understand awesome, right? When, when we see something as awesome or amazing, when John sees these signs, he's not thinking of great tacos. He's thinking of something that is probably quite literally taking his breath away. This idea, you know, I mean, what would you think if you looked and you had a vision and you saw seven angels coming with seven bowls full of the wrath of God, that would be awesome, right? That would be amazing. Or think of Isaiah in chapter 6 when he gets the vision of God high and lifted up on his throne. That is awesome. That is something that would take your breath away. That is something that inspires and causes awe. Right? When Isaiah saw that, he didn't say, oh, that was pretty cool. No, when Isaiah saw that vision, he fell down as though dead, right? He said, I am undone. I saw the king, <laughs> and I'm a man of sin. That's what he says, right? So let's not just gloss over those words. So this is an amazing sign, a, a great and marvelous sign. These magnificent angels are, are uh, coming out of heaven uh, and they carry these plagues as they are about to uh, pour out the, the, the final dregs of God's wrath on uh, humankind. Now, when we see the number seven, of course, in the, especially in the book of Revelation, what does that bring to mind? Completion, right. Fullness, completion. So this number seven... Perfection, fullness, completion. Here we see seven angels with seven plagues. Angels, of course, are God's servants. They are His messengers. They are created to do His bidding. Right? He's got myriads of angels to do whatever He wants. It's not like God can't do things. It's, just, it's to show His majesty. Right? What, what great and awesome king doesn't have an entourage? So He's got all of these angels that are there to do His bidding. And here come seven of them. They are messengers. They are the ones we see here carrying out His will. And we see here that they have seven plagues. Now, when you hear the word plague, what does that bring to mind? Diseases? What about in the Bible when you hear the word plague? Egypt, right. So now, yeah, in general, the word plague, which is almost transliterated out of the Greek, plague, it means a plague or wound or something like that. But... When connected to the theme of God's judgment, it should call to mind God's judgment in Egypt during the Exodus. Now again, we'll look at this more closely when we look at the actual bold judgments, but very, you know, they're, they're, they're drawn, the imagery is drawn right out of Exodus in almost all of them. You've got seas turning to blood, you've got sores, you've got scorching, you've got darkness and pain. All kinds of things going on there. It's calling to mind the judgment in Egypt. Now, we've seen this connection before in Revelation, right? Particularly uh, the connection with the trumpet judgments. But it is not overstating the case 
to say that the Exodus was the single greatest act of God's redemptive work in the Old Testament. Right? Everything in the Old Testament points back to the Exodus. Everything in the Old Testament calls to mind what God did for His people during the Exodus. Everything says, you know, when God speaks, He says, as I, you know, I am the God who brought your fathers out of Egypt and brought you to the Promised Land. All of God's judgments are based on the fact that He was their covenant God who brought them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. So everything in the Old Testament refers back to that singular moment in redemptive history in which God worked mightily to save His people. And as great as the sign of the Exodus is, it is itself a prefiguring of a far greater act of redemption that we see at the cross. So whereas in the Old Testament, everything looks back to God's saving work at the Exodus, that in itself should point us forward and look forward to what God does in the New Testament with Jesus at the cross. Everything in the Exodus story has a connection to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Moses and the Exodus are a shadow. They are they prefiguring. Jesus and the cross are the substance. And again, we'll see this more as we look at the plague or bowl judgments more closely in weeks to come. But finally, we see that these seven plagues here are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. It is complete. When these bowls are poured out, God's wrath will have been sort of exhausted, if you will. Okay, Just completely finished. Kind of, you know, you know, I think the ESV says it is finished, right? It says there because New King James says complete. But again, you know, we referenced this earlier. When you know, Jesus dies on the cross, he says, it is finished. It is finished, right? What was finished? Well, the fact that God poured his wrath on Jesus was finished. And here we see it is finished will be applied now to the wicked as God pours out his wrath upon them. It'll be finished. So either way, it's like you either get your wrath poured out on Jesus in your place, or you get wrath poured out on yourself. One way, it's going to be finished. <laughs> you know, either way, you know, however you want to look at it, it's going to be finished one way or the other. But here we see that this, this, um, these seven plagues are it. That's it. It'll be complete. God's wrath against mankind will be exhausted. It'll be finished. Now, we've been arguing through this study in Revelation that... Um, the cycles of visions that we see here are in many ways concurrent, okay, or that they overlap, or that they sort of recapitulate the events of what we're calling the church age. So when I say the church age, I'm referring to that period of time between Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension and his return at the end of the age. So this entire period I'm calling the church age. Now these cycles like I said, they sort of look at that in period of time from different camera angles or different perspectives. So we, you know, again, this cycle is going to look at that same period of time, but from a different perspective. If you think about it, 
you know, why do we have four Gospels? Why not one? <laughs> right? Why not seven? I mean, you know, seven would be, you know, the number of completion. Why do we have four Gospels? I mean, I don't know, except that God inspired four Gospels. But if you know, I mean, each Gospel is different in a way. I mean, it's a, they're the same thing. It's telling the same story. When I say different, I don't mean that they're telling contradictory things. What I mean by different is that they look at the life of Jesus from different vantage points. John's Gospel is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's telling the same story of Jesus, but it's looking at it from a different perspective. Matthew has a perspective. Luke has a perspective. Mark has a perspective. John has a perspective. All of them are telling the same story with different perspectives to give a fuller, more fleshed out view of Jesus Christ. Same thing with these cycles at the end of Revelation. Each one of these cycles, these seven cycles that we're looking at, looks at the same period of time from a different perspective or a different camera angle. Again, I use my favorite example of just instant replay that you see on a sports game when you, you see the different camera angles. They show you the same play over and over again, and you're getting all these different perspectives. It's the same play, but viewed at from different uh, angles. But here we see that God's patience has reached its end and the time has come now to pour out his wrath. So now we move on to uh, verses 2 through 4 as we see uh, the church triumphant sings. Do you remember when I, I made that um, comparison? Church, militant, church, triumphant? Okay. It's just different ways to describe the church. Um, the church militant is the church on earth. It's, we use the word militant because we are in a spiritual warfare. All right, the church triumphant are those who have gone on and passed on to be in heaven with our Lord. They are now you know, they are triumphant. They are before our Lord. They, are in a, uh, you know, they have received their reward and, and so on. So it's just a different way of looking at the church. The church on earth, the church in heaven. And here we're going to see the church in heaven singing. Now, if you recall back to the first cycle of the seven seals in Revelation chapters 4 through 7, that cycle began in the heavenly throne room in chapter 4. And we've seen other glimpses into the heavenly throne room. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, we see the multitude, this vast multitude that is beyond number, made up of every you know, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, are standing before the throne in heaven. In Revelation 8, verses 1 through 5, in the seventh seal, uh, we see another vision of he in heaven as the angels are gathering coals from the fire before the altar to pour those out onto the world below. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, we also get another vision of heaven as we see the actual Ark of the Covenant, uh, the tabernacle open, we see the Ark of the Covenant there. And then finally in Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we see the vision of the Lamb with the 144,000 on Mount Zion, which is heavenly Mount Zion, which is uh, the heavenly throne room. All of these visions give us glimpses into the heavenly uh, temple or the heavenly throne room. 
So it's not surprising here to see this fourth cycle of visions begin in the heavenly throne room or the heavenly temple. Look again here at verse 2. So John says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So as God is just about to expend the full extent of his wrath on those who dwell on the earth, John sees a vision again before the heavenly throne. And the first thing John sees is what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now it's not the first time, and nor is it going to be the last time that we've seen this sea of glass. If you remember, you can flip back to uh, chapter 4, verse 6. By the way, we're probably going to be doing some sword drills tonight, so be ready to be flipping through the Bible. But in chapter 4, uh, chapter four verse 6, again, this is that uh, vision that starts the first cycle uh, before, uh, before the heavenly throne. And we see in verse 6, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So we see this sea of glass before the throne. We'll see it again in Revelation 21, verse 21. This is the New Jerusalem at the end when New Jerusalem comes down. And we see here in verse 21 of chapter 21, the 12 gates, so the New Jerusalem has 12 gates and 12 foundations. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. That's where you get the reference to the pearly gates. Uh, Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So you get this sort of idea of a sea of glass out there. Now, when when you think of the sea, what do you think of? Yeah, kind of waves, right? It's, you know, sometimes you see a nice tranquil sea, but is it ever like glass? No, I mean, even the most mild sea will have, you know, you'll see some very gentle waves, some gentle ripples and everything. A sea of glass is, it's like there's nothing, okay? It's just complete uh, lack of movement. Because in the Old Testament mind, in the Jewish mind, the sea represents danger, okay? So, Whenever the sea would come up, if, I don't know if there are any fans here of Lost in Space from the 60s, but you'd get, you know, like danger, Will Robinson, danger. That's what happens when, the sea of, when, the, when you see the sea in the Jewish mind, it brings up danger, chaos, evil, all kinds of evil things come out of the sea. Yet here in heaven, you have a sea that is like glass, which indicates that the sea is, in a sense, completely subdued, completely under control by God. No more will the sea bring danger or trouble. Now this idea of the sea of glass, which we looked at when we looked at Revelation chapter 4, in a sense is sort of like 
call it the floor of heaven or the ceiling of the world. Okay, it's the floor of heaven or the ceiling of the world. It's it's just this idea that it's where you know it, it separates, if you will, in a, in a kind of in a visionary way, separates heaven from earth. So you've got the sea of glass now. Beside the Sea of Glass, we see, now it depends on which translation you have. ESV says, beside the Sea of Glass. New, New King James says, on the Sea of Glass. I think on the Sea of Glass is actually better. Um, on the Sea of Glass, we see those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. And again, this is another, you know, this is a beautiful image here we see of the church triumphant. They're the ones who have conquered the beast. Now, the church doesn't conquer the beast through military conquest. Right? The church does not conquer the beast on its own in its own strength and its own power. We looked at some of these already back in chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. What is what do we see the beast doing oftentimes? Well, take a look at verse uh, chapter 13, verse 7. It was granted to him, that is the first beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you look back a couple more chapters to chapter 11, Uh, verse 7 there as well. When they finish, this is the two witnesses, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. So the beast is seen overcoming the people of God here on earth. The beast is given power to do this by God because God is in control of all things. But the beast is given power to do this. So how then does the church overcome the beast? Well, it doesn't do it through its own strength. It doesn't do it through its own power. It doesn't do it through its own military might. The church conquers the beast through the blood of the Lamb. Through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, again, look at chapter 12, verse 11. And they, that is the people of God, they overcame him that is Satan, because Satan has been cast down, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Or if you look again at chapter 7, in verses 9 through 14, at the end really, let's just focus on verse 14, because here we see again this great multitude. These are those... When John is asked, who are, who are these arrayed in white robes in verse 13? And John's like, I don't know. You, you know. You tell me. So then the angel says, these are those who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how the church overcomes the beast. Not through overpowering it, because our warfare is spiritual warfare. We do not war against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities in this dark age. 
So we overcome the beast through our testimony, through our faith in Christ, through the blood of the Lamb which covers our sins. That's how we conquer the beast. If you think about how at each at the end of each of the seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3, they each end with the words, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. And it's, again, this is not the idea of a sort of a physical combat, a physical overcoming. It is, it is to the one who remains faithful, to the one who is steadfast, to the one who holds on to the faith, you get the rewards only those, only, uh, we only conquer because Christ has conquered sin and death on the cross for us. As I said earlier, as we looked earlier, in fact, every other depiction of the church here upon the earth that we see in Revelation shows them uh, being conquered, being overcome by the beast. But we also see that the church overcomes by holding fast under persecution. The church overcomes by holding fast under martyrdom. Again, in Revelation 7, the church triumphant are those who have come out of the great tribulation. The church here gains the victory because uh, the church overcomes by being uh, bought by the blood of the Lamb. So the ones who have conquered the beast here are the faithful Christians who hold fast to their testimony um, by conquering his image and the number of his name. In other words, they don't give in to the false wit- uh, worship. They don't give in to the idolatry uh, that we see uh, by those who take the mark of the beast, who, who worship the beast in his image. They, they, they conquer the beast by remaining faithful. And here we now, we see them standing on the sea of glass. They have harps in their hands. Here the church triumphant has conquered, and they stand here ready to praise. That's what we're going to see here. They stand here ready to praise. And the content of their praise uh, is found in verses 3 and 4, where we see here, the church here, those who conquered the beast, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested." So they sing the song of Moses. Now what is the song of Moses? The song Moses sang after God brought them out of Right. It was the song that Moses had the people sing um, after the, the Exodus. So here, keep your finger in Revelation 15 and flip over to Exodus 15. Now this is right after the crossing of the Red Sea, and um, as the Israelites made it to the other side of the Red Sea, the Egyptian army is crossing as well, and then God releases the seas, and the seas consume the entire Egyptian army. And here we see as um, 
God has delivered his people, Moses sings a song. We've seen the singing, a new song, um, multiple times so far in Revelation. It's usually to mark some great um, feat of salvation, some great feat of deliverance. You sing a song to celebrate something God has done for you. And here, of course, the people of God, just like they are in Revelation 15, are standing by the sea. They're standing beside the Red Sea that has just now consumed the entire Egyptian army. And we see here Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overcome those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You're outstretched, you're stretched out, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. And the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. To your people pass over, O Lord. To the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So here we see this great song of praise to God for the victory that He won for them over Egyptians. But again, remember this points to a far more greater victory, and that victory is of the Lamb over the beast which we see here in Revelation, back in Revelation 15. And the song that the church triumphant here sings, praises and glorifies God for His great and amazing deeds. And again, don't let those words fall on deaf ears. This idea of great and amazing. Great and marvelous are Your works, O Lord, God Almighty. Just and true are Your ways. Who will not fear His name? Only those who have bowed down to the beast in His image. Those are the ones who will not fear 
his name. So now finally in verses uh, 5 through 8, we see here the, the heavenly sanctuary opened. So we've seen the, this, uh, this vision of the seven angels with the seven plagues. We see the church triumphant uh, by this sea of glass, singing the new song, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, praising God for, his, for the victory that they have won in Christ over the, over the beast and over his minions. And now... Um, we see the heavenly temple itself open in verses 5 and 6. John again says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Now, we've discussed this several times in the past, but heaven is often described as a temple. As a, because heaven is where God dwells. The temple was an earthly replica of where God dwells. So heaven is sort of the archetype, if you will, of the temple. The temple, um, yeah, the earthly tabernacle is, an, is a copy of the heavenly archetype. Uh, whenever we see the sanctuary open, it's always for judgment here. We saw this again in Revelation 8, verses 1-5, through 5, and Revelation eleven nineteen, when the temple of heaven is open, judgment comes. And here we see the heavenly sanctuary open, and out of it we see these seven angels who have the seven last plagues. They are getting ready now to pour these plagues out on the earth. These are the same angels that we saw in verse 1. So now they come out of the heavenly temple. They are coming out to carry out God's will, to carry out His judgment on the earth. Now again, these angels, they are magnificent to behold. They are clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Linen, of course, is a material that is often associated with temple Service. Uh, the priests would wear uh, linen. Uh, the, the, the high priest had a linen ephod that he would wear. So it's fitting that these angels are coming out of the heavenly temple, out of the very presence of God. They are clothed in a type of linen. Uh, their appearance indicates that they are holy angels, uh, angels that are carrying out God's will. And they emerge to bring God's final judgment upon the earth. The seven last plagues. And as they come out of the heavenly sanctuary, we see here one of the four living creatures. Now, do you remember who these four living creatures are? What's that? Close. Another M, but not the seraphim. Cherubim. <laughs> we think, you know, that word cherub, you know, whenever you think of the word cherub, you think of these cute little baby, you know, with rosy cheeks and teeny tiny little wings on their back. And no. If you remember how the cherubim are described here, they're described as these kind of beasts with four faces, right? Uh, a man's face, a, a lion's face, an eagle's face, and an ox's face. And they've got all these wings and they've got eyes all over the wings. You know, I mean, that would be, now that would be awesome too, right? Much better than tacos. But um, now, so these, one of the four living creatures, one of the cherubim, 
as these angels are coming out, this cherub here is sort of like handing them a bowl. Here you go. Here's, here's your bowl. Here's your bowl. Here's your bowl. And it's full of God's wrath. These are full of the wrath of God. Now we saw something like this, similar to this, uh, back in Revelation chapter 4, uh, in verses 6 through 13. If you look at verses 9 and 10, uh, the third, you know, the, this is the proclamation of the three angels that come out. And the third angel uh, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So we saw this kind of imagery before of consuming the wrath of God, how the wrath of God is sort of poured out like a drink offering, if you will, um, before God here. God's wrath, His holy and righteous anger against sin and wickedness is seen as a cup or a bowl that is full of His anger, which is then poured out upon the earth below. Again, you know, very vivid imagery here uh, that John is using to describe these visions. But then John finishes in, chapter, in verse 7 here by saying this is the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And this describes God's eternality, God's foreverness, if you will, right? God is eternal. He is, He was, and He is to come. Uh, he lives forever and ever. This, this is, you know, Revelation has referenced this attribute of God multiple times in Revelation 1.18, in Revelation 4.9, in Revelation 5.13. God is described as the one who lives forever and ever. The one who is, who is you know, for all times. Um, and it's referencing this because the world passes away. right? Everything in the world will pass away. Everything in the world is not forever. Okay? I mean, we just know this. You look at us. We grow old. You know, we die. Um, but God lives forever and ever. So after these angels are given their golden bowls, we see then some activity going on in the heavenly sanctuary in verse 8 where we see that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So here we see the temple sanctuary filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. This smoke is the glory cloud. It is, it is the, the, the symbol of God's glory, His Shekinah. That's a fancy word that means His glory cloud. Right? We've seen this before. Uh, I would turn to these passages, but I'm not going to. Uh, but you can note these references down. Exodus 19.18. This is after the Exodus. Right? This is after the Jews have been released from Egypt. They're on their way. They come up to the foot of Mount Sinai. And when they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, God appears on the top of Mount Sinai. And what goes on when He appears on the top of Mount Sinai? All kinds of things are going on there. right? Smoke, fire, earthquakes. Because God has come down and, in a sense, stepped on the top of Mount Sinai. 
Right? Whenever God comes into presence with the creation, it shakes, it rumbles, it rattles, it rolls, it's smoke and fire, all kinds of things going on. When the Jews saw that, they were like, I'm not going up there. You go up there, Moses. <laughs> you know, everyone, who wants to go up there? Everyone took a step back, and the only one that was left was Moses standing there. It's like, I guess I'll go up. But that's the, you know, the glory of God appeared on the top of Mount Sinai. At the end of Exodus, in chapter 40, verse 34, they had just finished erecting the tabernacle, which is the original version of the temple, right? The traveling temple, the traveling tent that was God's uh, throne room. And when they were finished with that and they erected it, what happened at the end of Exodus chapter 40? The glory cloud comes down and fills the tabernacle, and no one could enter into the tabernacle while the glory cloud was there. Another uh, example of this. When Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 finishes building the temple, so now this is the more permanent version of the tabernacle, he finishes the temple in 1 Kings 8, and and he's dedicating the temple. When he dedicates the temple, the glory cloud comes down and fills the temple with smoke. And of course, in a vision that Isaiah has, we referenced this earlier, when he, in the year that King Uzziah died, he goes to the temple, and instead of mourning the fact that an earthly king has died, he gets a vision of the heavenly king, who is and has always been sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. In other words, it's like, don't worry about your earthly king. I am still in control. I am the one who is still here. And, he, you know, and then he says the whole, you know, he's getting a vision, the whole temple filled with smoke. And it was like the train of his robe could barely fit into the temple. So he gets this glorious vision of God. It was also the glory cloud that led the Israelites in their wilderness journey from Egypt to the promised land. So here in Revelation 15, we see the sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, fills up with smoke, and we learn that no one can enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now why is that? I didn't have time to study this. I was hoping maybe you guys can help me out. I'm lying. I did study this. (laughs) That was more rhetorical. I was just, why, you know, because it says no one was able to enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And I was just asking the question, why do you think that is? Yeah, because, well, that's, yeah, because the glory cloud filled it, yeah. We've seen that here, the bold judgments mark the completion of God's wrath. Now, the temple... What in, in the Old Testament, when you know, the Jews had the temple and was functioning, what was done in the temple? What would the priests do in the temple? They would offer sacrifices, and those sacrifices would atone for sins, right? So here we see that no one is able to come into the temple until God's wrath is finished because there is no atonement for this wrath. This wrath is coming out full force, on those who dwell on the earth. That's unbelievers. Full force on them. There will be no second chances here. There's no chance here for atonement. That chance was given to you in Christ, and now it's 
Now it's like this is it. It's, this, is, this is coming out full force now. God's wrath has been stored up. And now that that dam is burst and the fullness of His wrath will be poured out on the earth below as we will see when we look at chapter 16. But now as we just wrap up for tonight, um, the completion of God's wrath, of course, means the end of world history. Right? When God's wrath is finished, world history has come to an end. And this is the moment that the martyred saints under the altar, if you remember back in Revelation chapter 6, when the fifth seal was broken, and you saw under the altar in heaven were the saints who had been martyred for their faith, for their testimony, and they are seen there crying out, how long? How long until we are vindicated? Well, wait no longer. This is what we're going to see here. This wrath is coming out and the martyred saints, the people of God, will be vindicated at last. And we'll also see here how God can differentiate between His people and those who, are, who dwell on the earth. Again, if you remember the plagues in Egypt, right? Oftentimes those plagues would affect only the Egyptians. Right? It would, you know, oftentimes you'd see but in the land of Goshen, where the, you know, where the Israelites were, nothing happened. You know? So God knows how to you know, execute His wrath on those who, who reject Him and to preserve those who are saved. And here we see that as the plagues are poured out on the earth, we see the church is already in heaven right, singing the new song of salvation. But again, this is a promise that is only held out to those who have conquered the beast, to those who, who have resisted the, the urge and the temptation to worship the beast, to follow the beast, to bow at his name, to take his mark. Revelation shows us a world in great cosmic and spiritual struggle. Satan may be cast out of heaven, but he's still a ravenous lion. That's what 1 Peter says. He roams on the earth as a ravenous lion seeking those whom he may devour. The call for the Christian is to be an overcomer, but an overcomer in Christ, to trust in Him, to, to rely on His blood that was poured out for you, to, you know, for the forgiveness of your sins. So do not give in to the lusts of the world. Do not give in to the temptation to follow the lures of this world, but stand firm in your faith. That is the lesson for tonight.